This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza. Handmade in small batches and hands down, my favorite tequila. Hey folks, you know I'm always telling you, ask your doctor if Baja is right for you. Well, I don't know what your doctor's going to say, but I want to let you know right now, it's the open enrollment period for the 2023 Baja XL Rally. That's right. If you need a little Baja care, you got to get in right now during the open enrollment period for the 2023 Baja XL Rally. February 17th through 26th, it's 3,000 miles in 10 days. It's a minimal assistance rally. That means there's no rescue trucks or no medical helicopters or no travel guides. You get to rely on your own wits and resources and probably the other 150 or 180 vehicles that are in this rally with you who are always darn nice and willing to tow you out or give you a ride to the auto parts store or to the mechanic or whatever you need. But hey, the Baja XL is open to anyone buy anything so if it's street legal you can drive at their classes there's a competition class if you want to get in and solve geotagging treasure hunt questions all day and all night there's the 4x4 touring class that Slow Baja does where we just pull out our benchmark map first thing in the morning get some achaca, some eggs, some hot coffee take a look at where the route ends that day and figure out what the most scenic squiggly dirt roads are Uh, on our map and that's that's how we do it Um, again there's no judging it's a heck of a lot of fun it's a major league adventure and it will certainly certainly cure your uh, your symptoms of uh, mild seasonal lack of adventuring all right ask your doctor if Baja is right for you the Baja XL rally more info at BajaXL.org or feel free to DM me through slowbaja.com or the Slow Baja uh, Instagram or Facebook sites for more info. Well, hello. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you listening to the Slow Baja podcast. I'm going to do my best this week not to burst into tears while I'm uh, doing the intro. So today's show is with Bruce Trenery, who is a very well-known guy in the world of vintage car racing and in the classic car trading, selling, buying, what have you world. He owns Fantasy Junction in Emeryville, California. It's right across, his showroom is right across the street from the Pixar Studios. And John Lasseter and those cool cats who brought you the movie Cars spent most of their time in Bruce's showroom um, checking out all the fabulous vintage Ferraris and Cobras and whatnot there, vintage race cars, etc., as they were trying to figure out how to make a movie where cars come to life. Well, the reason Bruce is on the show is I had this crazy experience as a college kid, a drunk as a skunk college kid camping in San Felipe at Kiki's, and uh, I was on the beach one day, and I just heard the sound of a Ferrari V12 engine, which is a very unique sound, and I had spent a lot of time photographing vintage racing as a high school kid and a college kid, and that's just a sound that you don't hear when you're in Baja. But I heard it, and I followed my ears to the hotel that was down the beach from our campground and found the finish line of the La Carrera Panamericana. And this race ran a couple years in Baja, and then it moved back to mainland Mexico, and that's where I got involved with it. This is a a race that originally ran from 1950 to 1954. It started off going from the border with Texas all the way down to the border with Central America, and that was in 1950 when Herschel McGriff won it. And then in 51, they turned it around, and they started off in Chiapas, and they ran north, which was a lot better to have the whole 
thing finish uh, in Texas or on the border with Texas. And as I've mentioned in shows previously, you know, what happened in the La Carrera Panamericana, Bill Strop and whatnot, led to... Um, led to the Baja races in the 1960s. Those guys who raced in mainland Mexico on the streets in 1950, 51, 2, 3, 4 found themselves in Baja in the 60s. There's a direct lineage. Anyways, Bruce happened to be in the uh, happened to race in the early days of the La Carrera Panamericana and I just thought that was such a unique crazy thing. I mean, had all sorts of uh uh, highs and lows and and uh, tragedies and whatnot, and we're going to get into all of that. But um, before we do, I want to send out my heaping dose of gratitude this week to the Overcrest podcast. You may know it as a pretty good podcast, but uh, I happen to be on with Chris and Jake, and I just want to say, hey, thanks, guys. And if you want to tune in to the Overcrest podcast you can find that wherever you find your podcast. You can find it on my Instagram uh, right now. And you can hear me talking to those guys about what I do in Baja. So that was fun. Thanks, guys. And without further ado, Bruce Chenery talking about La Carrera Panamericana when it was in Baja and when it was in the mainland. And then his son, Spencer, who now runs Fantasy Junction, is a super fast racer in his own right. Spencer one day gave him a Toyota 4x4 racing truck. I don't know if it was Ivan Stewart's. I can't quite remember if it was Ivan Stewart's truck or just a perfect replica of Ivan Stewart's truck. But anyways, Spencer gave it to his dad for Father's Day, and that led to them racing Nora, which was a completely new thing for them getting off and going 80 miles an hour in the dirt. So you'll hear all of that. And without further ado, Bruce Chenery. Uh, maybe you can tell me uh, who you are and where we are and why I'm here. No, wait, that's my part. You tell me who you are. Michael, this is Bruce Trenery, and we're at Fantasy Junction in Emeryville, California, uh, where we sell exotic old racing cars and street cars. Yeah, we are. It's a spectacular spot, and I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for making some time for me, Bruce. Um, I'm just going to get out and say it. Um, Bruce Chenery, Fantasy Junction. You're a longtime leader in the classic car world, buying, selling, trading, racing. Um, you know everybody around the world, if you ask me. My butcher strongly recommends you. <laughs> he, I think the, I think from your butcher, we bought a 275 GTB4 in about 1982. Do you know any, how many sausages that is and how many uh, beef bones for my dog? But that was for $42,500, I remember specifically. He probably wishes he didn't sell it. Well, Ron is an awfully good guy, and his son, Ron, and his son, Mike, um, traded Ferraris. And uh, Mike gave uh, Dad the Dino, and Dad gave Mike the Daytona when Daytonas were 350 He sold the Daytona and bought a house, um, which was part of the plan. And then years later, I think they just got rid of the Daytona, a couple, or the, the Dino a couple years ago. But enough about my butcher, Bruce. <laughs> Ron, Ron Spinelli. Spinelli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there today. I was there today seeing his son, Mike. Um, we're here to talk about you. We're here to talk about um, a couple of things that really interest me. Um, the early days, of, did they call it the La Carrera Classic then? Is that what how yeah, they referred to it? Ensenada San Felipe. 
And was that 86, 87, 88? Do you remember specifically? I think it was 87, 88, and 89 were the years that I did it. Okay. So I was a college kid on spring break in San Felipe camping on the beach. And, you know, I had spent my high school years working for the PR director at Sears Point and really loved um, going to the, the the vintage car races specifically. So I had been at Monterey in 81. I'd seen Fangio drive the Mercedes. I saw Sterling Moss, you know, when he was just a guy standing around, Carroll Shelby, Phil Hill, these guys just driving cars that were 20-something years old that you know maybe 30 years old that they had been famous in it at one time sure and i i loved that more than sort of modern racing even though the 80s like the gtp car looking at this porsche sitting here those cars were pretty neat too but sure i was very unaccustomed to hearing the snarl of a ferrari 12-cylinder motor in san felipe in baja so when i heard that i went sort of terrassing from my beach drunken you know um beach chair to the hotel that was the actual end of the i guess it was the end of you'd stop the yeah, stage and then you spent the night there or something right. that's right and had to go take take a look at the cars so tell me how it, it came about um did, had you been to baja at all before you you did those events sure. my parents took me down there in 1957 well that's Ensenada. even better let's get on to that let's start <laughs> yeah, but, let's start um, with you were born in 48 48, 48, 48 in baby boomer yeah. yeah anyway um so i used to go down there and actually get upholstery work done in tijuana when i was in high school and make it a weekend trip, drive down there and do it and come back. So Wait, I always you, like you, You're driving down from Berkeley. From Berkeley. So yeah. that's a full full day's drive to Tijuana. That's about 600 miles. Yeah. I'm, I'll be doing it next week. <laughs> Land Cruiser. It's a long drive. It's a long ride. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you experienced Baja in the 50s. 50s, early 60s. Yeah. I mean, but not... I didn't do the Baja 1000 or any of that no, stuff. No, 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 of course. Yeah. Yeah. How did your parents, and what was, uh, and you know, folks, we're in the showroom here at Fantasy Junction. We've got neat cars starting up. I think that's a Jaguar uh, XK120. Oh, 150. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't see it from here, but beautiful um, car. So we're going to have some, some car noise and some people stopping by to see these beautiful cars. There's a beautiful 427 Cobra behind Bruce and um, uh, is that a 962? 962. Is it a million dollars? A million one. One one, yeah. <laughs> All right. So back to 1957, why were your parents taking you to Baja? My dad was in the insurance business, and, and it was interesting because my mother had read all about trials and tribulations of people running around in Mexico in cars. So he left the car in. Uh, near San Diego and we took the bus down to Tijuana I mean from Tijuana to Ensenada okay. and it was a night bus and it broke down in the middle of the mountains so we were sitting in the middle of a road two lane road at night with no lights in a broken bus and uh, I can remember my mother giving my father a pretty hard time about wanting to come to Mexico but that was just the beginning I mean it just kept going from there there's always some big story whenever you go to Mexico and did you just take a take a little uh Beach beachfront bungalow in Ensenada there because you know that those days the the beach was right at the downtown. Right, That's right, right yeah. where the no, casino is. We, we stayed is. in a motel and uh, we were right on the beach. And uh, Jack Dempsey had a gambling casino yeah. that had gone bankrupt and was right. filling with sand on, from the beach. And there were a lot of dead sea lions float, you know, that had floated up. And I found out why that was because we went deep sea fishing with my father, and. Uh, 
when we hit a, a school of barracuda and they started to get caught, the sea lions would come up behind the, the caught fish and just take one half of the fish away in one bite. And the, uh, the deckhands would go and get a 30-30 and fire off the back of the boat. And that is probably why the poor things were floated up on the beach there. Yeah, that was before the Mexican Marine Mammal Protection Act, I'm sure. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> they, they needed it. Wow. And what were those early impressions? You're nine years old. You're in a yeah, foreign country. You could buy rockets. We could fire rockets yeah, off at night. I like exactly. that. And firecrackers and stuff. And it was just pretty, uh, pretty loose. And then I think I went down there again with a with a church group, and uh, we used our student body cards to rent motorcycles when I was about eleven. And I think somebody filled one up and forgot to put oil in with the gas, and it seized. We had to walk that one back. But. Um, yeah, we, I, I went down several times uh, before I started racing down there. Yeah, okay. Well, that's, I'm, don't hold back, Bruce. Have you got, a, uh, you've got an early right. Baja uh, story from well, the 50s Well, I mean, the other, the other the things 60s? we did was we took old, uh, when I was in graduate school, which was earlier, 71, um, a friend of mine had a bread truck converted into a camper van and said, I'm going to Mexico, and that was the end of graduate school. And... Uh, I remember we spent a lot of time in Guaymas, where they filmed uh, Catch-22 out there camping on that cove, and uh, we had a good time with the, an old truck. One of the things I remember about Mexico was that uh, if you broke something, it wasn't really a big deal. You could always get whatever it was fixed for almost nothing, and I think we broke a rear spring in the truck and got that fixed, and then we decided to do a whole brake job in the truck while we were at it, and I think the whole bill was less than $100. Well, it's interesting now because, you know, it's largely that has not changed. The, the price structure has changed. There are auto parts stores mm-hmm. now where there didn't used to be auto parts, you know. But from my college trips where literally a rancher was helping piece our car back together with some chewing gum and a flattened bottle cap and some electrical uh, tape, um, there's a mechanic. There's mm-hmm. a mechanic in every town. And yeah. there's somebody... I don't particularly have any mechanical skills, but there's somebody in every town, every village, who can point you to somebody who's going to help you. Yep, that's right. And, and they're all happy to, to do that, it seems like. And I don't think that's changed one iota. Yeah, I think yeah. that's very much still part of the culture, that that there's a, a cultural um, you know, default to, to help others. Yeah. I just think that's wired in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like a, a good group, and it seemed to be the same during the, um, you know, the, the, the Nora 1000 and also the, the, uh, the Long Carrera, uh, the Pan Am. Yeah, the Pan Am. There was everybody, almost, almost everybody needed some help somewhere along the way. Yeah. Well, let's go to get on to um, when you started uh, racing here in the States and what brought that on. I always wanted to race sports cars, and um, when I was in college, I started out with a Formula V, and then went to a Formula C, and then a Formula B, none of which I could afford, none of which were any good, and I didn't finish very many races, um, and kind of ran out of money at the end of college. And then I didn't really race much until I was, uh, I think, I went back to driver's school in 1979, and ran Formula Ford for a few years, which I could afford at the time then. And let's back up. You grew up in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. You're a baby boomer. Your dad's in the insurance. Did he serve in World War II? No, he was in the shipyards in Richmond. Okay, so he was building, doing his, his part on the home front. 
Right. And um, did you have exposure to motorsports as a kid? Did your dad want to take you to the he, races? His partner was AC, uh, not, what was his name? Uh, Freddie Agabashin, who okay. was an um, Indy driver sure. and ran the Cummings Diesel which was kind of an interesting car. And he ran uh, other Indy cars and finished second once or maybe even twice. But when Vukovic was killed in 55, um, he retired at that point and became an announcer. So we always listened to the Indy 500. That was one thing we did together. And then after I cajoled him enough, he would take me to the sports car races at the Oakland Airport or uh, um, Buchanan Field in, in uh, Concord or something like that. And then my uncle, had a dealership in Richmond where he had MG, Willys, Jeeps, and Piper Cub airplanes. Wow. Nice mix. And they had a sprint car team and a midget team. So we used to go to uh, watch the sprint car races uh, once in a while. Uh, he didn't drive. He had professional drivers, but then they, they lost two in one 30-day period. And uh, they kind of got out of the racing business after that. And did you have aspirations early on to, to yeah. get in yeah. a car when and I was, do that? Before I was 10 years old, for sure. Okay. And in fact, by the time I was 10 or 11, I had talked my parents into a go-kart, and we went to Rolling Stone and go-kart track out in Pittsburgh, and I drove around there to my heart's content. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you've uh, obviously extended that to Spencer, your son, who's yeah. quite an experienced professional racer. Yeah, he's done a lot, and he, uh, he also started in go-karts. Right. And then went to motorcycles and cars when he was 16, and... Um, and yeah, I'm very proud of him. He he was the youngest pro champion in, at 17 when they allowed you to get an uh, FIA license at 17. And then he was racing uh, prototypes with me at Daytona on the 24-hour when he was in high school. So that was cool. Astonishing. Yeah. I mean, you remember? I remember you telling me about the La Carrera when I was uh, totally fixated on on doing this and and saying that I think um, I think Spencer was 13 when he was your navigator at 12. Yeah, yeah. And the last he, time I did it, he was a navigator. Yeah, and so he's signing autographs, running 2,000 miles through mainland Mexico, and he's got to come back to sixth grade or something? Seventh grade, I think, yeah. yeah. Nobody believed him. And he, and he was with all these beautiful women in spandex every exactly. night getting the trophies because we yeah. won, I think, four, four of the legs in class yeah. uh, during that one. Yeah, That's hilarious. That's amazing. All right, well, Bruce, let's get on to um, you've, you've started some racing. And you're in this business. Now, mm -hmm. I remember you first in Mill Valley when you had Fantasy Junction there. Yeah, we bought the company over there. Okay. I, the, the fellow that managed it for Elmer Flagoff, who was the BMW dealer in San Rafael, who owned the company, was tired of losing money after nine months. And the fellow that managed it over there was um, Tom Renshaw. And he and I and another fellow bought the company from Elmer for $500. And that was the name? Fantasy Junction. We thought that we'd keep the name, not because I really liked it that much, but because Elmer had spent about $10,000 on advertising in the previous six months, and we thought it might have some recognition value. And that's the main reason we kept the name. And that was before internet pornography, so Fantasy yeah, Junction right. was totally a anything, different thing. You know. But, you know, if I want to get <laughs> through to somebody, you know. Sorry, folks. Who's calling? Bruce Trennery from Fantasy Junction. And I tell Mr. So-and-so what it's about, and if I know who it is, I might say, it's about that massage bill, and then I go right through. <laughs> <laughs> well, what possessed you to get into this this business, buying, selling, trading? Because I love cars. Yeah. Love the cars. And, and the good thing about being in the business is anything I did with racing, which was minimal as far as expense, I, I never spent what it really took to do it properly, um, was at least a business expense. 
So if you spent 10,000 a year, 5,000 of it was a business, you know, you could, you could buy things at half, half price, basically. And, um, and then it went up from there. So do we need to jump onto your first car? No. I mean, you know, my first car was a 47 Mercury with dead apples on top of it with the doors tied together because it had been broadsided for $10. And I brought my own battery. Drove away at 14. Kids can't do that today. Not as well. 14-year-old kids, get uh, they get to take Ubers, and then they get hand-me-down Auntie's Prius, and they've never had to fix a thing in their life, and that's what happens. Uh, so... Back to getting serious here, and I, I do want to get serious. How did this idea of doing a road race, an over, you know, 100 and something, 150 miles from Ensenada to Felipe? Yeah, I think Ensenada it's, I think it's 150 or 75 because you go up into the mountains down the other side over to San Felipe. I think that's about right. And there's a huge straightaway there, isn't there? At the end, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really people, going. people really get going. I, I remember I've driven that road a few times. Unfortunately, in like Volkswagen vans. Toyota Corollas, Coronas, um, nothing fast ever. Um, But how did that come to your attention, and why did you say yes? We were running vintage races up here, CSRG and HMSA stuff, and I was driving a Launcher Relia convertible. And I'd read all about the Millimilia and the Carrera Pan Am, uh, and I'm a real Launcher fan. And Launchers did well in both of those races. Sure. And so when we heard they were going to have this race... um, I entered a lunch Aurelia B24 in the first one, and I... Do you have one over here? Did I see? Yeah, we see? have one. Yeah. We still have one that we own also in the next room. And um, those are half-million-dollar cars? Less, or? probably. A little. All right. Three or four. And um, anyway, I, I, uh, I entered that, and I talked to my friend Terry Larson, who ended up later racing Ds and Cs and stuff, um, to enter his... his uh, those are Jaguar Arnold. Ds and Cs, folks. Yeah, yeah. He entered his, his Arnold Bristol, which was named Wacky after Wacky Arnold who commissioned them being built. And so we had those two cars and we ran in some class that was below 1960, I think, and over two liters. Uh, all right, so you're, uh, you've got a, a, a friend and he's... he's yeah, and there, and were, there were other people that showed up. There, were, there was a guy with a 54 Lincoln Capri with no safety equipment at all, with a baby in his arms, in his wife's know, arms. You told me this story, I don't know, 15, 20 15 years, years ago. And, and you know, he's he, rolling his along wife's nursing a baby. Yeah, and well, he's rolling along at 120 miles an hour with no seatbelts or anything, I don't think. And I think I met that guy not all that long ago. I think he judges Rolls-Royce, and he was judging the Presidio car uh, uh, show hmm. when I was over there. It's possible. I thought he was from Southern California someplace. Tall fellow with a beard. Yeah. Anyways, he, he told me about he and his family took the uh, Lincoln in uh, in La Carrera when he was in Baja. And I hmm. thought, could this be the same guy that Bruce had yeah, told me about how maybe, ridiculous maybe so. it was that his wife was nursing? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there was uh, there was a lot going on. It was, it was fun, and, and at the end, the, the finish of that race, the, first you left, they took you outside of town, so you didn't race the city, and then they started the speed section, and you raced to a town in the mountains, and that was the gas stop. So the motorhomes, everybody had been there, it left early, it was waiting with gas cans and stuff, and, um, and so you came to this this town and then you slowed down and you drove gently through town got your gas filled and left and I they may have been a, um, a thing like a time you had to be there 10 minutes or something I don't know and then after that then you blast down this uh, down down out of the mountains onto this flatter area across the desert towards San Felipe and at the end 
having never done it before, you could see, all right, as I, the, the, the Lancia would go 115 miles an hour. So I held 115 miles an hour for 10 or 12 miles, 15 miles. And um, <clears throat> at the end, I could see that there was a, a group of cars parked where we were going. I could just see it coming up in the road. And I thought, okay, you know, they're going to flag it, and then you're going to drive someplace and slow down and park. But basically, people just pulled over at the flag. At, at, at the, the flag. At the checkered flag. Yeah, so I got to the checkered flag at 115 miles an hour when there were people walking around between cars. Holy Toledo. And then clamped on the brakes. And at the very moment I did that, because it had been going flat for so long, it lost a head gasket, and it covered everybody in the whole area for about 150 feet in steam. Steam, yes, <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah. we, we ended up winning the class. It was good. Well, I finished my first La Carrera with a blown head gasket as well, trailing a nice, nice uh, stream of steam from my little Datsun. Um, I'm assuming that the other thing you probably learned about that you had not experienced in, in racing previously was the dreaded Mexican tope. Right. Yeah. And those just seem to be, there's one on each end of town, maybe two or three in the middle of town, and they just are not well marked. And they're very angular, hard speed bumps. And you're going to end up missing one and taking it at much faster than than you should. Somebody will anyways. And did you have any experience with... Yeah, we had a few a of those. Apart. The last car we did in the short career was a Genie Olds Can-Am car. Oh, of course. Well, that and, makes perfect sense. And in that one, with the topes, the, the, my co-driver had to have two 2x4s, uh, or four 2x4s, <laughs> behind his seat. And so we'd pull up to the tope, he'd jump out, put out the 2x4s, I'd drive it over the bank, over the 2x4s, and he'd go collect the 2x4s, put them behind the seat, and be strapping in as I took off. Um, luckily, you, most of the topes are in town, so you're not racing while he's playing around with seatbelts. But we had to carry four two-by-fours with us to be able to run that car in the, uh, in the short race. And who thought that was the, the best way? Who thought that was the best car for that? that I happened to have it, and we were running it in vintage <laughs> racing. But it, it was interesting. The, the car it had aluminum moles with four Webers on it and a dry sump system. But it... Uh, It'll go to 7,000 RPM, no problem. But when you're going fast for a long time, I had to watch, I had to drive it instead of with a tachometer with the oil temperature gauge. So as the oil temperature gauge started to reach towards 200, I would just modulate the throttle. So we only got to run at like 5,500 for top speed instead of 7,000, which I had counted on. But it'd still go about at 135, I think. Um. Not a very uh, good subject to dwell on, but the things that I remember from being a college kid is a couple people had some horrific offs, and I think yeah. there were some fatalities in that event, yeah. which probably led to its demise or, or to its move to mainland Mexico anyways. But um, one of the... one of the, um, Got a little road noise here. Um, one of the stories that I do remember uh, and I'm not sure if it was 87 or 88 but there was an accident and I want to say it was an IROC uh, Camaro or Trans Am or something like, but a race car um, an actual racing Trans Am uh, Camaro and as I recall there was a Cobra and part of the wrecked 
Camaro came through the floor of the Cobra and took off part of the navigator's foot. Hmm. No recollection I, <clears> of that. One? I don't remember that. That wasn't that wasn't the year I was there. I remember um, with the genie. There was a guy behind me in a um, a Pantera with twin turbos or something and knock and uh, nitrous. nitrous and everything, yes. and he was behaving. I would say poorly, looking back on it. And when we left the town in the mountains, I told my co-driver, keep an eye out for him, right? And uh, uh, then he went blowing by us, and, um, and you know, we didn't see him anymore. And then as, my, as the, the support crews came through, he had gone off the road in the mountains and gone down a huge gully and was upside down and on fire and dead. And then towards the end of that race, there were two people, I think they were in Porsches, 911s, and they were taking pictures of each other, videos or something, and somebody swerved, and I think two people got killed then too. Wow. So they lost, I think it was three, or maybe, maybe both people with the Porsches, both cars got involved. It was either three or five people were killed on that one. And, and who was the San Diego BMW dealer who drove an yeah. M- L6, M6? And I believe he brought the TV weatherman with him on a lark as the navigator and set up a tripod with a video camera, VHS video camera. But there was a kind of an underground outlaw film of this La Carrera thing that I saw in the late 80s. I know the 80s. guy you mean, but I can't think of his name off the yeah, top of my head. And he, he was filming from sort of in between the, the seats with the tripod wedged into the back. And as I recall, the... Uh, the TV weatherman was absolutely howling with fear, squealing as he was doing 130, as I yeah, think, yeah, you know, yeah. and that straightaway out to dead. You yeah, know, that, it, that was a fast section. That was, a, and if you were in a TR or something, you could be going 180 miles an hour or something. You know? And can you define TR for the listening like audience? Test Rosa, something, you know, some, yeah. something strong yeah. and big. There was somebody that had some Camaro that was supposed to be able to go 200 miles an hour yeah. uh, when I was doing it. And what were your takeaways? From that. I had a good time, but I mean, I I thought I I did it three times, and I don't think I would have done it anymore. Um, it's a long way to go. Uh, it isn't the safest thing in the world. Uh, There's but that. It, but it was it, that. Was, it was fun. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, the idea of any kind of a race where you can race across from point A to point B, and it's not on a on a racetrack, I think, is really interesting, just intrinsically. But. Um, you know, it's just like the the Pan Am. I did that six years, and you know, I don't think I'd do it again. And it's not because I'm afraid of doing it again. It's just I had a lot of fun, and and after doing the same thing over and over again, it starts to blend in, and it's not as fresh or interesting. Yeah. You've been there, and you've done that. Yeah, that's right. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that you know, you can only take so much of the same thing. And in the meantime. Let's jump around to some of the other places that you're getting invitations and you're going to the finest car events, the finest open road, the Mil Milias, the, the Copa Italias. Yeah, the, the Copa Italia, I think, was maybe the, one of the best. Yeah, ever. so, I mean, the same guy who's Bruce from Berkeley, who's, you know, putzing around in Baja, is also in some of the finest cars in the world with some amazing people sure, driving sure. these. So yeah, it's, yeah. Just, I had some wonderful times. Just yeah. entertain me with a few of those well, uh, um, stories, if you don't mind, Bruce. In, in 1986, 
uh, I got a call from England from Peter Egg, and Peter Egg's a good friend of mine that, that we had done a bunch of rallies with and stuff over the years. And he's the fellow that built the McLaren for uh, 5000 and Can-Am stuff for Bruce McLaren, the, the customer cars. And um, he said, hey, would you like to do the Mille Million? I said, oh yeah, that'd be great. So he says, okay, fly to London. So I said, all right, but it's in Italy. Why don't I just fly to Italy and beat you there? And he says, no, no, fly to London. So I fly to London and he's got this gigantic locomotive of a thing called a Bentley Speed 6 Vandenplatt Tour. And um, so uh, his son was going to do it with him. His son was going to do it with him. And his son decided... Uh, that uh, he couldn't go, so he said I, I would go. And he says, well, you have to drive the car from London, and, and I'll, I'll fly down, I'll meet you in Brescia. Well, that's all the way across Europe. You have to drive the oh, yeah, car. I had to drive it. And, and what year is this? 1986. This is the weekend of Chernobyl. There is nobody going outside, and I'm driving this open Bentley across Europe. An open 1930s Bentley. 1931, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm driving it all the way across Europe. And Sorry, so, I'm laughing. Yeah, so we did, we, did the, yeah. Uh, we did the, the Millimilia with it. It ran fine. And uh, I think we were the top British team, which was pretty cool. And then uh, Peter said, I'll see you in London, and flew home. And so I got to drive it back across Europe. And, and again, the week that I drove it down there, nobody was going outside because of Chernobyl, you know. Kind of weird. And then with Peter, I did it uh, two other times in an Alpha Monza, eight-cylinder supercharged Monza. Another and, 30s, 30s car. Yeah, 32. And, um, and then I got to do it once in a, a Jaguar SS100 and then a, a XKSS or D-type Jaguar. And then last time I did it, uh, I did it in a pontoon Tessarosa which wow. was fantastic. And, and the best thing about that was... And that's late 50s, 57, 58? 58. 58. Yeah. 58. Really, it shouldn't have been allowed in, but they, it was a Freitas Rosa. The Italians wanted it. But um, the, the neat thing there was, I think we were number like 293, and 292 was Sterling Moss in, a, uh, in the 722 Mercedes that won 1955, the, the fastest wow. time ever. Was uh, Jenks with him? No, 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 he had passed away. Yeah, all right. and, and so on the second day... We stopped for coffee with, uh, with Sterling Moss and his co-driver, and then we realized we were late, and so we took off down the Adriatic, and I got to be on the bumper of that 722 Mercedes with a pontoon TR for like 20 minutes at about 115 miles an hour. It was fantastic. It was one of my best memories of the whole thing. Yeah, and, and I hate to be garish here, um, but this is your business. Put a number on those two cars today. Well, they just sold uh, one of those Mercedes in a coupe form. Not that one. Not that one. Not, Not that the one that won the race. The lesser race. one. The one the, that never raced. Yeah, the and lesser they, one that never they raced. They had to sell that one for 142,000 million. 142 million. million. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the pontoon TR is probably 45 million at this point. And it was American colors. It was painted white with blue stripes because it was run by three young Playboy types that bought it from Ferrari, had Ferrari service it, and ran it in the, Mil and ran it in the Le Mans in 1958. And uh, and stayed out of everybody's way, didn't cause any trouble, and finished seventh overall. It's a pretty good result. Jesus. So it was a cool car. Yeah. Can can we just diverge for a second and give? Can you just give me your take on that drive, that that Sterling Moss drive, and in the not not with you on his tail, but the the action, real one, the, the real, real one. Has, has there ever been any other uh, performance like that? in a car in an era where the car was so powerful the tires were so crummy the brakes were what they were i mean can you 
Can you break down that achievement at that time, those sort of average speeds, the three crashes, Jenks, you know, rolling on a, it was supposed to be toilet paper, but of course it was a, you know, the early rolling. uh, Well, he was uh, a very accomplished motorcycle side hack side hack yeah. and he so he wasn't afraid of much and, and so fearless were, exactly yeah. and so and i think that he was a good guy to to pair with moss and i think moss was somebody told me one time that moss could almost read a newspaper across a room so he had incredible eyesight incredible eyesight so if something's on the road you know you, you could see oil or you could see you know water or whatever better than almost anybody else and he had fantastic reflexes and he, and he was at the absolute top of his game mercedes was probably the best vehicle to have for that distance it may not have been quite as fast in a 10 mile section as a ferrari might be but the chance that it would finish without any aggravation mechanically uh, is much stronger probably in the Mercedes and the Ferrari. So it was a perfect combination and um, I think, you know, the stars aligned right then for it, to, for it to happen. And, you know, somebody that was maybe trying to be the fastest guy ever might have gone off the road. Uh, somebody that had to look at his notes and then look up and was afraid to look back at his notes might have lost his place unlike Jenkinson and and where the car could have broken and so none of those things happened and it and it was a perfect a perfect run for those guys and uh, and it's one of the all-time epic racing stories period yeah. I mean there should be a, a documentary or a recreation or a CGI yeah. Yeah. Uh, version of it um, from what I read uh, Fangio gave him a little helper helper something something to kind of keep him keep him awake a little something he didn't quite know what it was but if Fangio took it Moss said I guess I should take it too I heard something about that but I wasn't aware exactly what he ended yeah, up with yeah, a little some, speed maybe yeah a little speed and uh, I mean he stayed up and he drove that he drove all the way on to I forget where I mean maybe to uh, um, he drove it back to Germany yeah I think I think all the way back to Germany after the event yeah yeah. so a thousand straight plus probably didn't sleep the night before plus yeah, you know, yeah. right on back to Germany, following the event. Yeah, yeah, incredible, incredible thing. And I mean, that car, that particular car, I would think is maybe the most valuable car in the world. Well, if the one that didn't race is 142 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't run into the back of it. <laughs> Things you think about, don't you? I didn't think about it at the time. We were worried leaving the Testarossa out of outside of hotels because somebody could steal it, and. That was an interesting car because the fellow that owned it had traded a Swiss fellow. The uh, uh, the Ferrari 375 Plus, the one two three car that Maglioli had won the Mexican road race with 1954, the last one, which was a pretty epic event in itself. And um, he traded him that car, and he had quote I have to take in this Testarossa for like two million dollars. So that's why we had the Test Rosa was already in Switzerland. And interesting story on that, when we were driving it down, uh, we were driving it down from Switzerland to, to Italy for the Milamilia, and it was Wednesday afternoon, and we were just about to the Italian border when the thing j- felt like it jumped out of gear. And I went, what the hell's this, you know? And, and so we tried different gears, there was no connection to the back wheels, so we coasted off, towed it to a garage, jacked it up, and it had a broken axle on the right rear. 
And so uh, I thought, where am I going to get a TR axle on <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon so we can have it in tomorrow morning? Excuse me for laughing. Yeah. So I thought I'd sold a, uh, a Tour de France, also 1958-250, to a friend of mine in Switzerland. So I didn't want to call him. So I jumped in the rail car, drove all the way back up to northern Switzerland, banged on his door and said, Bracky. And he goes, hey, what are you doing here? And I said, where's your floor jack? And he goes, what? Where's your floor jack? I need an axle out of your car. And he goes, but, but, I mean, just this is a lot of money, a million dollars for the car in 1980. Yeah, in those days for sure. And those are 10 plus million. Yeah, yeah. anyway, so he wasn't very excited about me taking the axle out, but I didn't really give him a lot of choice. And I banged the axle out in about 15 minutes, wiped it off with a towel and jumped in the rental car and left. And, and he, he was like sputtering all the way to the rental car going, you have to bring it back, you have to bring it back. And then we got down to the TR and I slid it in. It wouldn't fit. It was too long. So I cut it off. <laughs> And we finished the event, and we drove uh, over to Monaco after the Mille Amelia and watched the Grand Prix races, and, and then drove back up to Switzerland and dropped the, the uh, TR off, and I told him I'd buy him two new rear axles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you, you know where to get them, and it's nice to have friends. Yeah. Well, yeah Cunningham makes them in uh, at DK Engineering, and his was starting to twist where mine broke also, and so he got two new ones out of the deal. It wasn't a loss, but I wasn't going to go. My friend came from Australia, and, and, and we came from California. I wasn't going to go home because I wasn't going to cut a half an inch off this axle. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Does, do you think anybody today doing the Mill Millia in these pre-1957 and older cars, or in your case, a 58 um, Testarossa Ferrari that you said is maybe a 40-something million dollar car today? That just boggles my mind. Mm. It just boggles my mind because, you know, there's you see that used to see them sitting up at the Fairmont for the California Mille when... Sure. when uh, Martin David. Swig was was running that, and sure. um, who's the Tony and what's his, his wife's name? Tony Wang. He still that has beautiful one. yellow one. Yeah, he still has. Yeah. I, I would take my son over there when he was in in high school, and we'd always show up late the day that they all drove away. He would, I would drive him over there and let him see them all drive away, hear them start up, hear them take off, because it's only a few blocks from our from our house. And Tony's car was there. He wasn't there. It was you know whatever. It was raining. He didn't come. He didn't bag but the car was sitting there and here's you know my son brand new learner's permit and he thought well i i, I you know i can take it if you need me to <laughs> but it's a beautiful beautiful car but yeah, I, lovely I, thing. I digress um do you think that participants today in the melee are driving their cars down from switzerland or england or wherever or do they is it like monterey and they just all show up in a in a I think you know most of the cars come from such a distance that they probably show up in a transporter, but um, I think that a lot of the Italians probably drive their cars there, and I think probably a lot of the Swiss do too. You know, I mean, it's it's a good time out. Yeah, and you, if they did, they'd have more of a chance of finishing the race without or the rally without a. Um, uh, a problem is, and and that's because that so many of these people are so afraid to drive these cars. They don't test them, and if you don't test them, you know, you, the, the things that can go wrong in a thousand miles are a lot. Yeah, they're going to show up. Well, let's get on to the thousand miles through uh, two thousand miles through <laughs> mainland Mexico and the La Carrera um, from the Carrera Classic in Ensenada, San Felipe. That eventually moved back to mainland Mexico to recreate the, to run the, 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 the route from 1950 to 1954. The first first time in 50, they went north to south, and then they realized what a disaster it was to have everybody on the border of Chiapas uh, in Central America 
you know, after this week-long road race. So next year, they started in Chiapas and went back, and that's that's the way I did it, and that's the way that that you got to do it. But uh, tell me about those those well, six years that I you had, ran that. When, when I ran the... Um, when I ran the, the one of the races in Mexico, this must have been 1987. We heard that we heard that they were going to run the next year or that fall. I can't remember whether the the classic was in the spring and then it was going to be the fall that they were going to run the long race. And I was told that the cars had to be made before 1955 right. to qualify. And so I had purchased when I was down in Mexico. I met. Uh, Chuck Tatum who built the Tatum special and he was going to try and run it with his son-in-law who helped him pay for the restoration of it and it wasn't ready so they were mad at each other and I bought the car and, I, and it was a 53 Tatum special with a GMC a big sports racer I thought perfect I'll use this but then there was n there was no trunk there was no place for anything and it was rough as a cob as far as how how it was sprung so it was really a track car and it it was a that w that wasn't going to happen. So I I thought that the the cars I had in high school that I loved were Hudson Hornets, and I remember that Hudson Hornets had been used in the Mexican Road Race. They'd sure. also been used in NASCAR successfully sure. during that period. So I, I went and out and found a, a Hudson Hornet with a twin H power, a 308 cubic inch flathead with two carburetors, and a three speed with overdrive, and it was an absolute star. So I bought that. And um, and then I had it fitted with a roll bar, seat belts, the trip meter for the the rally meter, and I put full metallic brakes on it, and um, and a good set of Michelins, and thought I was pretty well ready. So that's what I took down the first that, year. The, that was the early days of the La Carrera before right. it became full NASCAR under some old sheet metal. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's yeah. right. Where cars were were doing 180 to 200 miles an hour. That's right. No, Be this wasn't like that at that time. Um, but it was it was good fun, and uh, unfortunately, you know, the organizers uh, found a trucking company that was going to carry the cars from the American border, at Mexicali, I think it was, to uh, to Chiapas, and um, so Loyal Truesdale uh, organized this, and a fellow gave him a 356 Porsche. There was a Morgan that was Dennis Glavis's car. Uh, there was my Hudson, Loyal's Hudson. And I think Doug Mockett had a Lincoln. And the truck flipped over near uh, Guadalajara and um, destroyed a couple of the cars, but seriously damaged the Hudsons. And so that, that race was way behind the eight ball to begin with. And so you flew into Mexico City and somehow made, made your way to the crash site or to wherever the, the vehicles ended up. They sent another truck to pick up the remains. and. Um, it was supposed to be there. And a funeral procession. Yeah, just about. And, and we flew into Mexico knowing nothing about this, into Mexico City for the driver's meeting yeah. and, and the press uh, thing. Because this was the first year, so nobody knew what to expect. And um, Eduardo Leon said, you must have heard about the accident. And I said, what accident? And he said, well, the truck tipped over. And I went, ha ha, you're kidding. And he said, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> and so uh, we waited and waited and waited for them to deliver what they had left to Mexico City to the trucking yard to see if we could fix the stuff before we went to Tuxla. And right. it didn't, they didn't get there until the night before we Which left. Which is not near. It's not near no, Mexico it's, City. No, it's got to be 1,500 miles <laughs> yeah, south, right? Still, still quite, <laughs> yeah. a, quite and, a trip. Uh, so they, they did get the cars there. They, they did endeavor to beat them back into shape and get them going. But 
there was, you know, all the oil had dripped out of mine upside down, so, and the engine was moved in the chassis because the roof was smashed in and the glass was all broken. You had to climb through the window because the doors didn't open. It wasn't as pristine as I'd left it. Hmm. And as I, uh, as I remember hearing the story the first time, which was many years ago, it was a pretty nice car when it left your hands. It was a beautiful car. It was maybe the nicest Hudson you'd ever, ever owned, had. for sure. Yeah. Most of the Hudsons I had, nicest. it cost me like 80 to to $100, and I paid ten grand for this one. Yeah. It was a really nice one. Yeah, a long time ago. Very sad deal. Well, uh, you did it six years in a row. Right. Can you take me through a couple of the highlights? You were there for the, rec- for the epic um, Pink Floyd years you were with uh yeah. with your friends i was with peter ag you know yeah. porsche yeah yeah you were there with your your friends and <clears> i think uh the feeling at least in the la carrera circles is after uh was it mark knopfler from dire straits went off the, yep. in a c, c replica. replica they had yeah, a couple, broke his leg yeah here at slow baja we can't wait to drive our old land cruiser south of the border and when we go we'll be going with baja bound insurance their website's fast and easy to use. Check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. The, the word inside the, the La Carrera circles was because of the film that Pink Floyd made, which was like the only film for a decade or more on the La Carrera. So if you were interested in doing this thing, there was so little information and the internet wasn't what it is. And... You know, you, it was a word-of-mouth event. And then there was this this video that, you know, that the guys from Pink Floyd did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they had fast cars, and they knew what they were doing. And Alan... Uh, Decadney. Yeah, so rest his soul, just passed. Uh, Alan Decadney was, was sort of the, um, what would you call him? I guess he was sort of like the host of this thing. Did most For of the, the English guys. Yeah, yeah, did most of the talking. And... I think they really scared a lot of people. Scared you know, them. Scared them. I think, I think that such a well-prepared team with such phenomenal cars endured such um, difficulties that it really, they say, it always knocked down the, uh, the entries from England. There were, all, there were never more than one or two potentially from England. And, and, you know, America might have 30 or Europe might have a, a half dozen or eight, you know, and Canada yeah. might have 15. So. I, yeah, I, didn't, I never felt that. I, I mean, uh, I thought that that probably helped it more than anything else because it added the star power. Sure. Uh, you know, Nick Mason and all that. Yeah. And, and, um, Great soundtrack, too. Yeah. And I think that, uh, to me, that brought it forth in everybody's consciousness, you know. I mean, the, the, you, we were talking about this uh, the last time we talked, which was talking about Loyal Truesdale. Mm-hmm. What a great character. What a character. One of the all-time characters I've met in my life of 75 years is Loyal Truesdale. I mean, unbelievable character. And he, uh, you know, he was the liaison for the Americans, and he was loose as a goose and so if he told you something was going to happen on thursday it might be wednesday it might be friday but you can almost count on it not being thursday (laughs) and and uh uh you know but i loved him i mean he was he was really fun he organized all the hotels and stuff for eduardo leon and so he would do a calculation as to how many people would drop out on a given day and he just subtract that many from the hotel roster 
so that he didn't have to pay for so many hotel rooms. So if you showed up late, your hotel room would be given away to somebody, right? <laughs> yeah, what a character, what a, what a guy. You know, and one time he missed the start because he was on, a, on a, some kind of motorcycle raid for BMW or something in Central America and the border got closed and he had to like ride through some area where they were fighting to get back up to, to uh, be the, the American liaison like yeah. for the second day and on and so crazy stuff. Well, you managed to make it through uh, six 2,000-mile events from you know all the back roads, the beautiful back roads yeah, of lovely. colonial Mexico. It's, it's truly a stunning thing. Yeah, I saw staying it. Staying in Oaxaca, staying yeah. in Zacatecas. Yeah, I mean, places that, again, I was in Zacatecas when the race came through. We were just talking about that, and yeah. that's where I met Conrad Stevenson. He was, yeah. Yeah. His car was on the trailer already, and that's where I met Doug Mockett, and I said to Doug, who's, you know, a, he's professorial in his appearance, yeah. kind of white, longish hair and spectacles. And I said, do you see any speed on this race? And he's driving a 53 Oldsmobile. And he said, I was doing 165 today coming in from Aguas Calientes. And I'm looking past him at his Oldsmobile saying, you're doing 165 miles an hour in that. And then I think, well, maybe he's, he's pulling my leg or exaggerating. And he has just deadpan affect no 165 so i'm now i start to qualify i'm like well what else do you race oh i have a vintage formula one car that i keep in europe and then i have another vintage formula one car that i keep here in the states and so i said well how does the la carrera rate he said it's the best week of my life yeah i've been going he said i've been going through a horrific divorce this is the only time that i don't think about it and i'm here and i have it's absolutely the best week of my life and he said Whatever you have to do, whatever mountain you have to move, do it and get into this race. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of events like that. I mean, the Copa d'Italia was like that. I think that there's probably events in South America that are like that, you know, that are epic. And uh, and Mexico is certainly one of them. There's no question about that. The the best builder that built the cars that I have the most faith in was John Ward. Oh, yeah. He built an Oldsmobile Fastback, I think, for the first year that was so outrageously wonderful that one of the English guys just couldn't believe how fast and wonderfully constructed it was and bought it and took it just to drive on the King's Road in London and blow them all away. Uh, and he bought it from him, I think. And then he built all the Curtis 500, 500K Curtises that uh, I think Zambrano drove one. He won the race in 1989 with one. Um, and then I bought that from him. And I thought maybe with Spencer, I'd, I'd try and win the race, right? Instead of just go along and have a good time. And, uh, but my feet were too big. I couldn't, I couldn't, my, he had to wear like ballet slippers or something. And he's not as big as I am. There was no way I could drive the thing you know, competently. And you moved that car a couple of times here. Is it the 55 Curtis or 54 Curtis? 54 Curtis. 54 yeah. Curtis, but it didn't actually race in the race or something. I remember. No, no, no. It was so built, it's a, it's a continuation car with the, uh, the blessing of Arlen Curtis, okay. the son, uh, Frank's son, and, and John Ward built them. And, and John uh, Ward built, they were fantastically built. Yeah. You know, he won the race um, with his wife, who never read him anything from a root book because she was afraid she'd make a mistake. She'd just sit there and knit, and he would drive the, uh, drive the cars, whatever he could see, and he won the thing. And uh, I know he said it, it went 180-some miles an hour. 
And so, folks, this is John Ward who builds cars for Hollywood, not John Ward who builds the Toyota Land Cruiser Icon 4x4. Different John Ward. Yeah, this John Ward uh, built the, the Knight Rider TV car. Yeah. But he also ran with Jerry Titus in, in uh, the Daytona 24 hours in 1969, finished second overall in a Pontiac Trans Am. So when I was digging into doing the La Carrera in 2006 for my 40th birthday, a video was circulating on the internet, and it was Ward and I believe it was a Studebaker mm. getting clocked at just over 200 miles an hour, but he had already had a fire, and it, there wasn't a hood on the car, and he's, yeah. doing, he's doing slightly over 200 miles an hour. Yeah, and in the no rear window either. And this is where I'm thinking, and I'm, what, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do 105 in my Datsun. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the, the point is, you'll miss the first beer at the end of the day, but that's about it. Everybody will have a good time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was going to get to the finish line, which was the, the goal for me, to just, right. just yeah. to participate and to do it. Hey, let's jump ahead to that Father's Day gift that Spencer gave you. Uh-huh. The, the Toyota. And, and doing something completely different after, I don't know, were you 60-ish, 65 years old when that occurred? Yeah, that's about right. 65. Fairly interesting leap that you made. Um, set it up for me. Well, we'd never done any kind of a dirt race of any kind. Well, I always kind of wanted to do the Mint 400. I watched the Dakar every year uh, on TV. Um, and, Spence, and I watched, Spencer I, was involved. Spencer raced the Dakar, yeah? He did, but that was later. Um, but he, uh, uh, we always tried to watch a little of the Baja 1000. But the idea of racing through you know, the desert at night yeah, is a step too far for me. Right, thinking about it, but this this one, what what happened was I came in on Father's Day and he said I got a surprise for you, and he had an Ivan uh, Stewart truck, a replica Toyota, and uh, so I I was a little trepidatious to be honest with you because we'd never done that before, and um, so. I saw this thing and I said, man, and he says, look, I've got it figured out. We're going to go do uh, a prep on this um, in Baja. We found this group called uh, uh, Wide Open Baja that puts you in a buggy, which is basically indestructible, and they teach you how to deal with these big silt beds and going through rivers and going over jumps and sliding around corners and what to look for and this and that and the other thing. And so... Um, and you've got 30-something-plus years already, 40-plus years of, of real racing Regular experience. racing, yeah. Regular track and racing. Track racing, yeah. And so uh, we went down with Vic Rice, who Spencer did, and Vic did it with me, too, the Daytona 24 Hours and Sebring and all this stuff, and um, <clears throat> his son. And we had a hell of a good time, and I would recommend it to anybody. And you went down to, to Cabo. See, you went yeah, to Cabo for a wide open Baja. Yeah, three days, yeah. I think it was, or four days. And, uh, and when we came back, we, we knew what it felt like uh, to slide around in the dirt and stuff and and how to get through some of these big uh, ruts and things like that and so um, when we went down there we thought we were absolutely ready and at the start you start out of Mexicali and uh, you start on this flat uh, pan uh, a dried lake and we were lost within 500 yards we were on the wrong road I couldn't believe it well that's the problem because there's there's tracks that go everywhere. every which way and yeah. sometimes they all meet up again yeah but if you're following tracks i always say go for the freshest 
tire tracks. Yeah, yeah, that's, that makes that's sense. That's the way I always. Well, figured. we were trying to follow somebody. When I mean, we were following a guy, and it turned out he made a mistake too. You know, so that both of us turned around. It, 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 we were only off the track for five minutes, maybe, but if that. And but it was it was shocking to see how quickly we could get lost. And then going across the 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 uh, I was driving the first day, and going across the this flat, dried lake. We were roaring along, and we came up to this ditch, and I slowed down for the ditch, went through it, and came up the other side, and I got passed by one of the famous guys whose name escapes me right now, in one of the big V8 trucks. And he was throwing out dust, and we started, we both left this ditch at the same time, but I just couldn't see, right? So I, I kept going for about 30 seconds across this lake bed, but I just couldn't see anything. And I can imagine what it's like on the Baja 1000 at night yeah. following somebody. But anyway, I couldn't see, so I slowed down. I said, the hell with it, I'm gonna slow down and stop until the dust clears so I can see what's going on. And when I stopped the truck, in front of the truck, within five feet in front of the truck was a steel pole <laughs> buried in the sand straight up that I happened to stop in front yeah. of. Do you, have, do you have a regular relationship with luck? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, later in that event, we were going down a, um, we were going down a, a, a valley. We were on the left-hand side of the valley. On the right-hand side, it dropped straight down into a gully. And the left-hand side was a hill. And we went down this valley as far as we could in high gear. And then there was a, a quick left and a right along the side of the hill. And uh, as we got down there, I hit the brakes and the brake pedal went to the floor. And I didn't even have a chance to pump it before we slammed into the, the bank with the left front wheel on the left side of the car. And then I limped off with a flat tire and no brakes and parked the thing. But if it had broken a couple of seconds later when I hit the brakes, I would have just disappeared through thin air yeah, over, off, over the side of a hill. Off the ravine. I was lucky. Always and, been lucky. And you did that race again. We did it again. I mean, the first year, we actually, uh, th there was not much competition. There was a father and son group with a small, this is a small pickup, imported pickup class, whatever right. it was. And this guy had stuffed a Chevy in it, in his. And so it had a lot of zip. We just had a V6 so that the thing came with. And um, <clears throat> anyway, he, we were kind of complaining because he, ha he was in this small bore class with this five-liter Chevrolet yeah, motor. V8. Anyway, we came up against some town, and you probably know the name of it, but there's a jump in the middle of the town. It's a famous place for the off-roaders to go through. Okay. And there was a crowd on both sides of the jump getting people to go, yeah, yeah jump yeah, as yeah. far as you can, jump as far as you can. Well, anyway, I just kind of went up and over the thing and drove out the other side. Nobody even clapped, right? This father and son team trying to impress the locals went flying over the top of it, and when they came down, it broke and it tore the rear end out of the bottom of the truck. And they had to, I have to hand them credit though, they loaded what was left of it onto a trailer, drove back to San Diego, Jesus. and fixed it overnight, and, and missed most of the next day, but caught up with but the last day to go, to go back to the end. Well, that is one of the neat things about these stage rallies now, and like the, the difference between Nora and Score, where Score just runs straight from the beginning to the end through the night, whatever. Yeah. Nora stops and has dinner and a party and all that each night and people do have a chance to sort of fix something fix things yeah getting it back to san diego seems ridiculous but anyways that that yeah. uh, that puts you clearly in the winner's seat yeah there, there was one other for a really, class win in your first event yeah we won the class the the the, the, the next year i think it was <clears throat> we, we had a really long um uh, speed section i think it was something like 175 miles and it was a is a washboard road and we drove on this washboard road 
forever and forever and forever. And we came to the finish of the washboard road and the guys marking your card happened to look under the car and said, hey, the rear end's leaking a ton of oil out of it. You better do something about it. So there was a village along this, uh, this lake about a half a mile farther on. So we drove into this village. There's nobody walking around or anything. And we found a guy that did welding in the town. And he came out with a, a glass of gasoline. Yeah, how's he, how's and he clean, gonna? <laughs> And cleaned the rear end <laughs> without, without draining the oil out or anything. But yeah. cleaned the rear end with the gasoline and a rag while he smoked a cigarette. <laughs> and then climbed underneath the truck with the gasoline and the rag and the cigarette. And welded, welded the thing, welded the crack up. And then just reached around on the ground to pick up scraps of metal and made gussets out of it. And then we poured in a quart of uh, 90 weight that we had. And the whole cost was about $30. And it was about 45 minutes that we were stopped. And we had the thing fixed and on the way. So no, no real loss of time. And, and how do you explain that to your racing friends who say, Mexico's too dangerous, off-roading's crazy. I mean, how do you, how do you break down that experience, Bruce? I, I think it can be really dangerous. I mean, I think that, you know, when, when I drove, I kind of tried to leave a little bit of a cushion in case something happened. Um, so I do think it's dangerous. I think you have to accept that it's dangerous, and I think you have to mitigate that as best you can. I think using you know, good safety equipment, having a, a sat phone with you is a good idea. I think a lot of those things you can take care of. Yeah. Um, the fact that you can fix things that if you, if, if I drove the car to a four-wheel drive place with a cracked rear end, they'd want to take it apart, replace the housing, they have to order a housing, they'd have to get the right one, then they'd have to maybe change the axles, and while we have it apart, let's put the bushings in it and the new bearings on the ring and pinion, and let's set the ring and pinion and everything, get it all back together, and it'd be a three-month process, and it'd take $3,000. But you could be on your way for 30 bucks in less than an hour in Mexico, and I, I just like that idea. I think it's great, you know. Yeah, I, I've spent a lot of time in my life here saying, how would I fix this if I were in Mexico? Because you know there's another way to do it yeah, that's yeah. just going to get you down the road, and it's going to actually be probably fine. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is... Not the right try, way. Well, no, but if you try and do it right, I've seen when you buy the new housing, you buy the new ring and pinion, you have the new ring and pinion set up, and somebody doesn't do something right, like they don't set the ring and pinion up just right. Like, like the Toyota might have done when it was brand new. You know, the guy's only done 10 of them, and this time he didn't torque it enough, over-torqued it, made, the, made it too tight, too loose, whatever. Uh, and you can spend all the money and still not get the job done right by trying to do it right, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, Mexico, is a, it's, a, it, it's all part of the experience. You just look at it as part of the vacation, you know, standing around watching this guy underneath the, the thing, welding away the cigarette in one hand and a, a gas-covered rag in his pocket, you know. And did you have a full-service crew that could have fixed that had you gotten it to no. where they were? No. No. So that's the same way I do it. I, I'm just going to rely on who's, who's in each village if I need something. Yeah, that has its drawbacks. You know, that took sure. us out of the race I mean, I'm not in a, 1992. You yeah, know. I'm not a racer. Yeah. It's, I'm just getting through. It has its drawbacks. But, um, you know, you're not paying a hotel bill, airfare, you know, wages, and all these other Second things. Second vehicle, insurance, yeah. trailer. Trailer, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we always had a trailer it, in, in the Nora race. We had a trailer. Oh, sure. And, and we also had, uh, we lost one trailer in Mexico because it broke in half because of the roads and then had to drive the car. But um, generally, we had a trailer in, uh, in the La Carrera, too. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I really would love to to have a exhibition class vehicle with a modern fuel-injected V8 under the hood, 50s vehicle, air conditioning, music, everything. Never have to worry about if I'm going to, you know, um, beat this person or beat that person where I am in the race. Because when you're in exp- exhibition category in the La Carrera, you're on the stage every day. There are only two or three people. They, they bring you up and they give you an award every day. And I think it would be a lot of fun to actually drive a vehicle from here all the way down to Chiapas and back, but not a period correct racing vehicle. <clears throat> you can do it in a 356 pretty easy. If you had room to put, it, put something in it. Yeah, but I mean, they, they, carry, a lot, they carry enough and, they're, and a big person can sit them. They're yeah. comfortable. Yeah, they, yeah. they don't have a radiator to, or water pump or anything like that to fail. Right. Um, there's not many moving parts. That's, we found that five of the six times that I ran uh, the long race was in a 356 Porsche. Wow. The Hudson was, there was nothing left of the Hudson to do it again. Um, but that was a really good vehicle. I mean, we finished, I think, overall... Usually there was about 130 entrants, and I think we got sixth, seventh, ninth, and twelfth. And then when, when Spencer and I did it, we we broke a, a rocker arm on the second day, and so we ended up like 42nd overall. But we won four of the days during that time. And that's a two-liter. Yeah, they're built a Volkswagen. Yeah, they build a vil- Volkswagen motor. Yeah, yeah, Type Four or whatever. Yeah, it is. you you build a hot rod motor with fairly low compression to right. deal with a Mexican fuel with the gas. Hey, Bruce, you've been <clears throat> super generous. Thanks for making some time for slow. Sure, Baja. that was fun. Mike, um, re- 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 reliving all of the uh, the Mexican adventures. Well, I I really appreciate it. If folks want to see what you're doing here at Fantasy Junction, what's the best place? You're there, FantasyJunction.com. I know. Yeah, www.FantasyJunction.com. That gives you the website, and you can see what we've sold. What we have for sale you know where we are and you can click over to your social media the instagram the facebook the whatevers i guess that's not my, my <laughs> that's deal. Not your deal well you've run the business for a long time and now it's spencer's and uh you've got a full showroom and man it looks like you look tan and rested you're like, yeah yeah it's good i mean when, when, when you do what you want to do you never work a day in your life well that's what i that's what i'm practicing right now so <laughs> thanks for spending a day you're with welcome. me while i'm not working you're Cheers. welcome Well, I hope you car nerds like that, and I hope you non-car nerds got to stick it out to the end. Um, Bruce is such a lovely, soft-spoken human being. Um, I don't know what he's like when he gets uh, the, the visor down with a helmet on, fully strapped into a race car, but he, he has some lovely stories and is a beautiful human being. And uh, anytime uh, I'm over in Emeryville, I like to check out his his showroom and there's just a fabulous taco truck right around the corner as well as folks from fresnillo and zacatecas with uh, very very good alpa store tacos but i digress if you like what i'm doing well hey share the show hit that five star on apple leave a couple of nice words about why you listen week after week and i really appreciate you doing that and uh, you can do that on spotify now too and i would appreciate it if you did it over there really does help people find the show really does um and also every episode is over there at slowbaja.com and that's where you can find my sponsors like baja bound and if you're heading off to mexico you can click right through my site you can get uh your baja insurance your mexico driving insurance whether you're going to baja or whether you're going to mainland mexico you can get that insurance right through my site and this is what's called affiliate marketing you get the same great price you get the same service and they drop a taco in my tank which is really cool and helps me you helps me bring you 
this show week after week after week. So if you're going to Mexico, Baja Bound through my site on the sponsor page. And while you're over there at slowbaja.com, get yourself some merch. Get yourself some merch. I've got uh, modern trucker hats in stock. Sorry, the classic trucker is sold out. The pink trucker is sold out. The snapback is sold out. But I've got dad hats, and I've got the modern trucker in all three flavors, although I think there's only one or two left on the gray one. So get them while you can. And uh, T-shirts, sweatshirts, all that, they're still in stock. Get them while you can. Got a Baja trip coming up. You know I'm going to be broke. I'm not going to be able to have shirts and hats made for a long time folks so if you're eyeing one you better get it while you can i got a lot of stickers though there's no chance of running out of those uh so again hey thanks for listening and in the words of mary mcgee's paraphrasing i'm paraphrasing here folks i'm paraphrasing mary mcgee's pal steve mcqueen baja is life everything that happened before or after is just waiting (laughs) 